Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, today we're talking about dads, about fathers, but not uh, not just boring human fathers. We're talking about the dads of nature, the dads of the wild, the dads of the animal kingdom. Yeah, the dads with ta- tails and paws and claws. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and sometimes mucus-filled pouches and, and all oh, sorts of oh, oh, you're things. jumping ahead there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to bring you mucus-filled pouches and all sorts of tales of of dads in the wild. And I guess it's sort of like a early like Father's Day um, inquisition into the wild and how dads behave. Yeah, we're going to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we're just going to go ahead and be upfront about the fact that we are bringing our anthropomorphic baggage with us on this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, as we have done a lot of research on, on, on different types of dad animals, we have found a ton of anthropomorphism, too. I mean, not just in uh, an article being carried on the newswire mm-hmm. about a specific dad in the wild, but studies, too. Yeah, because I mean, we can't help but bring that in with us. And, and, and in some cases, we're studying fatherhood in nature to try to get a better handle on fatherhood um, just in, within human, um, the human species and human civilization, which, yeah. you know, the, the jury's still kind of out on exactly what a father is to us. It's a rather complicated idea. So it, it gets even trickier when we start taking our uncertain model of human fatherhood and then start applying it to other cases where evolution has, you know, come up with a situation that clearly works, but it may not... Uh, may not have a lot of parallels with human fatherhood. Yeah, I was thinking about that even in human culture. I mean, the, what it means to be a father in one culture is completely different than yeah. another. So there you go. You just got the panoply of craziness going on. Indeed. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. Let's yeah. talk about the good guys. Yeah, and the good guys, the, the good The dads. Cosby fathers yeah. of the wild. The uh, And in some cases, the disciplined daddies of the wild. Yeah, yeah. the tough love dads. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one of my favorites is, and I think just because of the imagery, is something called Darwin's Frog. And these guys are really cool because they safeguard their offspring inside their mouths. Mm-hmm. And the female lays about 30 eggs, and then the male guards the nest. And then after the tadpoles hatch, that's when he scoops them into his vocal sack. And then from there, the tadpoles feed off their egg yolk. And then once they grow legs... The father opens his mouth and lets them hop free. I love it. <laughs> and if uh, if he encounters any um, predators along the way, he can roll over and play dead and look like dead leaves. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a, he's a pretty good dad. I like it just because it reminded me of like Zeus and Athena, like emerging from his head, all the way out of his <laughs> mouth, and like little frog legs coming out of a mouth is is pretty exciting. Yeah, and I, well, I love example. Anytime there uh, an animal keeps its young in its mouth, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, now there's another frog uh, that deserves quick mention, and that's the barking frog. And uh, this is a North American frog, and uh, he stays near the eggs after they've, ha- they've hatched. He doesn't keep them in his mouth, but he pees on them to keep them from drying out. <laughs> so, so he has a different parenting approach that definitely doesn't really have any close parallels with human fatherhood. But it's pretty, it's pretty important. If if dad wasn't there to pee on the youngins, they would not survive in the wild. Oh man, I just, there's so many things I can't say right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you gotta do what you gotta do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think that one of the, uh, iconic figures in nature that we all know are penguins, right? Oh yes, these are the big ones. People were probably like 
thinking we were going to kick off with penguins, but we didn't. We threw them for a curve. That's right. Yeah. We gave you a one-two punch. Um, yeah, and the uh, are they the Empire penguins? Yes, the Emperor penguins uh, in particular, uh, because they yeah they live these long winters out on the open ice, and they choose the most hostile time imaginable to breed. They're they're you know they're 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 inland. They're freezing, and right. now's the time they're going to bring a delicate offspring into one of the most hostile environments on the planet. Yeah, and if you've seen March of the Penguins, you know what we're talking about here. That's when they all sort of huddle together in mass. And it almost looks like they need to have, like, you know, tin drums with, like, you know, pieces of kindling in it, you know, to to keep warm. Here I am anthropomorphizing right (laughs) right here. Uh, Well, that was kind of an anthropomorphizing film, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was one of those things that it completely tugged at your heartstrings because you see this struggle for life happening. Yeah, I had more of a struggle to stay awake when I watched it. Good. Yeah, you told me that. I don't understand that. Well, it, you know, it's like you're watching March of the Penguins. It's all like just like, you know, all this wind and, and you know, nice white vistas and penguins standing there looking cute. And and then uh, Morgan Freeman is, is talking to you. And the next thing you know, you've uh, you've gone to sleep and the credits are rolling. So I don't know how that turned out, but I assume. The penguins marched somewhere. I can kind of understand that. I was just thinking about Eraserhead and like where <laughs> so much of that film is just about the noise. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah, you've got the tundric winds like When you think up. of March of the Penguins, you think Eraserhead. Those I absolutely do. Two parallel films, right? Yeah. Here. I mean, he was a father as well, right? <laughs> well, yeah. He, he was probably of. one of a, he was a bad father though, I guess. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, this, the, the cool thing about these guys is that after the mother lays the egg, they, they do this really, intricate little handoff between each other mm-hmm. from from to the father so that he can then sort of put the egg, you know, cuddle of the egg inside, well, not inside himself, but in the folds of his own flesh and keep right. that egg warm. Yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, like, aren't there, isn't there some sort of like a parlor game where you have to pass up an egg from one person to the other and you, like, go, like take a chicken egg and you, like, clutch it between your neck and your chest? And then the other person has to get the egg, but you can't drop the egg. Is this like some sort of 19th century village, like reenacting party parlor game? I think it's like a a party game from back when kids didn't, you know, were too poor to have actual games. Okay, all right. I think you can use like an apple or a balloon or something as well. But it's kind of like that. It's it's because if they if the egg ends up rolling away, it's not going to last long at all. Like right, because the conditions are so very so harsh. Cold. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like time is of the essence. Even like just a, uh, I understand, just you know, a few seconds. If that thing rolls a few feet away, it could spell doom. Yeah, you're right, and that's that's why I thought it was um, such an amazing film to see that you know life is so precarious that with those two seconds of transfer from from the mother to the father, that the egg could in fact roll away, or there'd be some sort of horrible accent that would happen. Uh, but yeah, I mean that that's what happens. The dad then kind of tucks up the egg and sits there in that freezing cold, uh, being bombarded by the winds. Now, yeah, the the egg is actually balanced on his feet. Too. It's yeah. not like a situation where he's like setting on it like a, a right. chicken or something. He, he's balancing it on the top of his feet uh, with his like tummy fat over it. Right. And uh, and and keeping it warm that way. And then baby sits it for two months and eats nothing 
See, this, yeah. I mean, that's dedication right there. I would say, like, if it were a day or two that he had to undergo, like, these really austere conditions, I'd be like, yeah, okay, no big deal. But, yeah, two two months yeah. starving yourself just so you can warm this little egg. And meanwhile, mom is off trying to go get some food, right? Yeah, because remember, they're in this really hostile, isolated environment inland, and the penguins, there's no food around. The penguin has to, the mom has to march all the way to the, the uh, ocean to go catch something. Chew it up and then bring the, uh, you know, precious, uh, uh, fish, fishy vomit back, uh, for the kiddos. Yeah, fishy yeah. vomit. Fishy vomit stew. But yeah, I mean, and then her life is in danger too, right? Because yeah, yeah. She's, she um, might not come back. She's certainly prey at that point when she enters the water. But yep, those guys, definitely iconic. And then another great dad. Um, great, I think, again, because he's taking on the bulk of responsibilities here in terms of gestating is a seahorse. Oh, yes. This is the other big example where the um, the female actually inserts a tube into the male's brood pouch and impregnates him with eggs. That was pretty XXX. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And actually, uh, National Wildlife Federation, this is from their article, A Father's Day Top Ten. Um, according to evolutionary ecologist Sarah Lewis at Tufts University, seahorses are the champions of paternal care. They are one of the few animals where the males are morphologically specialized to take care of the young. So they're sort of they're they're not just doing this because, you know, it's a choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is part of their biology. And uh and when we're talking about uh him the the, the male seahorse carrying babies, we're talking as many as two thousand at a time. And uh the, this pregnancy lasts ten to twenty five days, which doesn't sound much to us, but you know, they, these guys don't live that long. Right. And um of course it's important to note that the dad doesn't stick around, uh neither does the mother after they're born. The, this is a case where we talk about the you know, the champion, the parental instinct and you know, evolutionary necessity of mm-hmm. the uh of the seahorse fathers, but after the uh the young are, are born, they're on their own, which is why they have as many as two thousand at a time, because most of those are gonna wind up eaten or dead. Right, right. So I guess the the father is a good father in the sense that he's helping out again during the gestation period, mm-hmm. but he hits the road. And was this the one too that you were saying that the mom was kind of a ne'er do well, like right after she impregnates the seahorse, she just well, kind of takes off. Yeah, but I mean, but then again, it's like it's not like he stays around after he, uh, you know, true. Um, well, I'm not sure what the word is. Um, Gives birth. It, yeah, sort of. Ejects the it's, eggs. Yeah, shoots them hatches out. Hatches them. And uh, and to put a, a finer number uh, um, percentage on that uh, that whole uh, uh, most of them die thing, uh, fewer than five infant seahorses in every thousand survive to adulthood. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. So there you go. And then uh, this is another one that I like: red fox. The red fox may be the best one. Yeah, and not we, the red fox. Yeah, only one D and one X. We're not talking about uh, the star of Sanford. So. That's right. Um, although he was a good dad. To Lamont. Yeah, I thought, well, okay. I guess good is um, relative. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know anything about his uh, the actual red fox, but I guess he was an all right dad in the uh, The fictional, the yeah, 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 the fictional dad. Um, but yeah, for about a month after the fox uh, female gives birth, the father provides food for her every four to six hours, which is pretty great for mm-hmm. a whole month. He's and, like a doting husband uh, and, and father. That yeah, yeah, he's like a postpartum doula kind of as yeah. well. Or even just, you know, in some cultures where the, all the, um, the, the matriarchs sort of move in for a month and take care of the female. He's actually performing uh, a very similar task. And he's really playful with the pups and he's very attentive for about three months, right? Yeah. Uh, but then the tough love kicks in. And... 
Uh, and this is through uh, David Henry, an ecologist for the Canadian National Park. He says, through years of observation, I've come to believe parents start reducing food as a tactic to get the pups moving away from the den. Um, so the fox actually starts to reduce the, the food supply, but does something really kind of cool. He takes food and then he buries it nearby. So he's not completely like saying you're on your uh-huh. own there, kids. This is allows the, the young foxes to try to sniff out the meal, mm-hmm. essentially, and um, it starts to cultivate hunting habits. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, you'll see this kind of behavior in a number of, of different animals where they'll, there's this teaching going on. And yeah. Uh, I think it's like, it, I think it's uh, um, meerkats. Meerkats are the ones that stand up. and Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah the meerkats. Uh, like, they'll they'll do things like uh, like wound a scorpion so that the young one can can kill it and learn to, to kill. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the teaching that that hunting instinct and yeah, passing what, it on. What's the phrase, uh, give a man a fish and he'll eat a meal? This is an awful eat, Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Right. Um, teach a man to fish. And he'll eat. And he'll always fish have food. all day. Or, yeah, no, he'll always have food, something. Or something, like that. yeah. He'll get really bored. But yeah. that was just, I, that was me. I got really bored fishing. Um, <laughs> I think it's nice. I think it's relaxing. There's another really cool example of fatherhood <clears throat> that I ran across, and this is uh, a bird called the jacana. And uh, this, uh, this is a bird you'll find uh, in Texas, but generally it's more of a Mexican kind of bird. And uh, the, this is a situation where the, the female actually has a harem of, uh, of males that uh, serve her and, and perform various domestic ta- tasks, including uh, building the nest, rearing individual clutches of eggs. And so she'll have uh, like up to four male counterparts scurrying around doing her bidding. So, That's, yeah. so you could have four dads, uh, four attentive dads, if you happen to be a Jacana. Well, to, to completely anthropomorph- anthropomorphize that situation, that absolutely reminds me of the Mosul uh, people in China. Have you heard about them? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's the matriarchal society. And basically, um, the, the males really help tend to the women and, and they kind of go out and, um, they help rear the children, but they don't actually help to rear their own children. And the reason for this is that the Mosul woman, they make all the choices in terms of partners that they want to, um, have sex with mm-hmm. or have a child with. And they may decide that they want that guy to walk in the morning. Um, but that doesn't mean that he, you know, can't see his child. It just means that he probably is going to play more of a role in that society as an uncle. So if a, if a woman in the Muslim um, society has a child, most likely that child is going to be reared by like four or five uncles uh, while the, the Muslim mom is, is off and about working. Wow. Well, the, yeah, that kind of lines up there to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, I saw parallels. I don't know. But that that made me also think of, of father's roles in general, like what we would might say, well, that's kind of bad because the father is not taking an active part in uh, his child's life, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we'll call that bad, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the animal world. And we definitely have a lot of examples here of dads that take off. Yeah. Again, this is certainly works for these uh, various species but by human comparisons we could sort of say they're kind of bad dads yeah uh one that uh, that i like that uh that isn't you know this dad isn't terrible but it's an interesting model to to uh, uh, to uh, compare to to human fatherhood you have a, a particular uh, species of uh, rodent known as the uh well actually he's a, a marsupial uh, a brown antechinus which uh 
is also known as Macleay's marsupial mouse. And uh, the male mates for 12 hours at a time um, d- during mating season. Just just one, just one, you know, female to another, just I running wild. It's, it's like orgastic. Yeah. I yeah. And he eventually um, humps himself to death, hmm. quite, 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 quite frankly. So he goes around, he does his uh, his reproductive duties and just tires himself out so much that he just dies. And uh, but this isn't sad at all because. He's kind of worthless. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's really, he's a really sexy marsupial. He's uh, apparently a lot of fun to, uh, to run around with, but he doesn't have any real skills beyond this. So he, right. he does everybody a favor and kicks the bucket before the, uh, the, 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 the young marsupial, um, uh, um, mice, the young, uh, brown, a, a, a tekin, well, I don't know what the plural of a, a tekinus would be, the atekinesis is, um, begin to grow. So he's not, there's not another mouth to feed there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is still kind of a little bit depressing that that's his only role. And well, maybe not to him. Maybe he's well, like, this is a perfect life for me. Well, but 12 it, hour stretches of sex. This is great. Yeah. But then again, uh, as I've, I've, I've actually drawn this comparison with this particular species in the past. This is a, an interesting, um, look at a species as a, as a female species as the, the female is the species and the male is just a secondary, secondary, an adaptation, a mutation that's necessary for reproduction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, it's like drones in a beehive. And the, the the hive itself is female, but they have to create males here and there to to just uh, to make sure that there's some sort of genetic diversity sort of situation. And uh, I'm liking what you're putting down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of Tomorrow. Another dad is that I was surprised about actually is the dog, the dom- domesticated dog, I should right. say. Uh, domesticated dogs don't really give a care about their own offspring, but mm-hmm. they are highly protective of human children. And of course, we we talked about this and uh, the podcast is your dog love you. Um, and you know we know that they evolve to really partner up with humans, so that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, you know, to see that they have that ability. Um, in this, this one instance, but they don't apply it across the board to their own species is kind of interesting, especially knowing that they evolved from wolves and wolves are actually great dads. Well, but it, you look at domestic dogs and we, as we've discussed in the past, we've really done a number on dogs and domesticating <laughs> yeah. them. We've, we've taken like an, like in the case of, uh, uh, you know, various herding dogs, we've taken an animal's natural hunting instinct. We've perverted it into, uh, this thing where they go out and, and control our prey animals for us, yeah. and move them around, and in some and in some cases make them look like a video game. If you've looked at that on YouTube, um, and uh, and then we take them out of that environment and like put them in a, a you know somebody's uh, urban ha- uh, apartment, and then the dog has nothing to do. We've we've perverted its original purpose and then taken that the new purpose away from it. So uh, yeah, and as one astute listener pointed out, it's a lot like Stockholm syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah. You should say, okay, fine. You're the human. Feed me. Um, another interesting one, the grizzly bear. Oh, wait, no, this is, wait, I've got one more before we get to the grizzly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that is the, uh, the elephant. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. El- elephant, uh, fatherhood is kind of interesting because you'll end up with basically two separate herds. You'll have the female herds that, that nurture the young. Mm-hmm. Like if you see videos of, you know, like elephants going around and packs of them moving around with their, with their herds of them moving with the, uh, with the young uh, elephants in tow. Yeah. Those are female herds with the, like the grandmas and the, and the mothers and the, and the, and the little babies. Uh, and, and 
and that's the female herd. But then you have the male herd, and they generally roam the huge distances as well, but they, they kind of keep separate, and they're looking for other female herds because they just want to go and reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um so, but you'll occasionally have these situations where a mother's, uh, a mother will be poached or die. Right. In a lot of cases, sadly, it's, it's, it's a situation where the mother's poached and then there's no one to look after the, uh, the young, uh, the baby elephant. Mm-hmm. And so you might encounter that young elephant just wandering in with a bunch of males. And this is, this can be a pretty dangerous situation for the, for the young, not because the males are going to, you know, go nuts on the, uh, on the baby elephant, right. but they just, they don't have this parental instinct and they can't milk the animal. Uh, the, the, they the, can't provide food yeah. and they're not going to provide protection. Right. Yet, uh, apparently if the elephant is old enough though, uh, the male elephants can actually, um, uh, help out. That being said, um, if the, if the male, uh, baby elephant, the male elephant actually is mature enough to where it can eat and it can grow and it's you know, like it an survives that, right? Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, then you see sort of two interesting things. If there, if there's nobody around to to raise this elephant, mm-hmm. uh, he can basically become kind of a hellion and go around, uh, for instance, killing rhinoceroses. There was a for sport, for sport, I guess, or you know, just out of meanness, he's like going to the bar and picking fights. Uh, like forty nine rhinoceros deaths were attributed to rogue elephants of this kind uh, between ninety four and ninety six in the wild. That's which- interesting. What about and because I think about this as a socialization thing. So, you know, what about within their own species? Well, with well, but that's the thing. If there are other males around, mm-hmm. adult males, they'll kind of bully. The, uh, this adolescent and make him behave. Ah, and, okay. And bring him into their fold. So. So in, this is like the, the studies that say within humans, uh, the human population, if, if you, uh, apply corporal punishment, like aggressive spanking, you're going <laughs> to raise a, probably an aggressive kid. I guess. But, uh, but I mean, the real take home here is that, that elephant dads, they're not so good for the early years. Like yeah. they're kind of worthless for the early years. But, uh, but you have that kid that has like a troubled childhood, runs away from home, ends up looking up, finding his dad, you know, looking mm-hmm. him up on the internet and, and falling in with him and then reconnecting with his father. Yeah. Well, that story can take place in, uh, in elephant, uh, uh, society. There was no human projecting right there. At yeah, all. I know. Not at all. Yeah. 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 Hmm. But, uh, I mean, elephants are fascinating. We should, we should do a, a whole podcast on them eventually. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, I think I told you that when I used to work, um, at a zoo, I would have these dreams about elephants all the time when I worked there. Um, Didn't you say they were about trampling? Yeah, Steven Tyler was riding one of the elephants in one of my dreams, and I was like, this is so wrong. Steven Tyler should not be riding that elephant. So, <laughs> you know, take take out of that what you will. Um, grizzlies. Yes. Okay. These are the bad. These guys, bad. yeah. Or even the ugly bad. Yeah, these, you're right, you're right. This, this is the, you've got your good, your bad, and these guys are ugly. Uh, the reason is that they're gonna go after any cub, regardless of whether or not it's their offspring. They're or gonna try and raise them? Their brother's offspring. They're only gonna eat them. Oh, well that's no good at See, all. See, don't you think that, I mean, to me, I think that, you know, on the scale of, of badness, ugliness, that, that pretty much tops it. Um, but you know, I mean, think about it. The territory of a typical grizzly is about 1200, uh, square miles, right? Yeah. And a meal is a meal. A meal is a meal, right? And, and we, we did that whole uh, episode on cannibalism, which if you're just hearing about it now, uh, we should stress that that cannibalism episode is only about animals and, and the wild. And, uh, yeah, we're not documenting yeah. our own 
cannibalism. Yeah, it's not about human Between cannibalism. Humans, so yeah. if you're thinking like, I don't want to hear about, uh, you know, a bunch of serial killers, it's not like that. Um, no, but there is sex and violence yes. in the, in the, animal in, in the animal kingdom, like kingdom. sexual cannibalism and all. But in that podcast, we really drove home the fact that if you strip away all these human, uh, uh morality issues and mm-hmm. cultural issues, cannibalism makes economic sense in the wild because it, it's all about an exchange of energy and there's that cub, and if you're the male, yeah. you're just absorbing that energy into your own. Well, especially if you move into the the, the later months of the summer, right? Um, yeah. Like, say, in Alaska, and salmon is no longer plentiful, and really, actually, the, the bears are starving. Mm-hmm. Um, if they happen to come upon a little pup, they're probably going to stuff it in its mouth, because, like you said, here you go. There's some protein that's going to sustain you for a while. Um, and, you know... There have been some people that say that it's an effort by bears to kind of cull down the pack so that they don't have to compete for food sources. And mm-hmm. there are other people that say that it's a way to force the other bears into estrus if they if they lose their young. Uh, but again, other people just point to the fact that, it, like you said, it's food. Yeah. Uh, but it's sad, though, a little bit. Well, and, you know, you also have plenty of... Uh you know, like we talked about the seahorses, you know, that seahorses don't do anything with the raising of their young. Yeah. But but they're not carnivores. You have a carnivorous uh, species like the Komodo dragon. Komodo dragons uh, lay their eggs, and that's pretty much it. They've done their their parenting duty. And if they run across a baby Komodo dragon after that, uh, mother or father, it doesn't matter. They're going to eat it because it's food, and everything's food to the Komodo dragon. Even Phil Bronstein's foot, <laughs> Sharon Stone's, I think, ex-husband now, right? Oh, is, did, did, did they eat the whole foot? Uh, I think it was just the toes, but I'm just oh, saying, okay. any, to your point, anything is food to a Komodo dragon. Yeah. Except, and this is the really crazy thing, the the ba- the baby uh, Komodo dragons know, of course, that they can climb trees. Komodos can sort of, they can climb to a certain extent, but not as much as the little ones can. Yeah. So they know they can climb and, and hide, but they can also roll in excrement because Komodo dragons will eat just about anything but um, but things that are covered in excrement or things con- con- uh, things that contain excrement. For instance, uh, when they're eating the guts of something, they'll sling the guts around just to empty them before they digest. They, you know, actually chew them up and swallow. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's disgusting. Kind of so, great. So, yeah, this is the uh, – but it's another case of, uh, you know – of of the young and uh uh you know they're they're just not a part of a species where there's any kind of parenting uh after birth so right right yeah. there's there's not a lot of hand holding right right uh, there's no montessori schooling no for sure no. Uh, pipe fish i thought were interesting and uh for a couple of reasons but one of my favorite article titles that i stumbled on mm-hmm. in research was this male pipe fish abort embryos of ugly mothers Oh. Yeah. So. Now the pipefish is uh, is a close relative of the seahorse. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And the pipefish carries the it it you know it goes through the gestation period mm-hmm. as well. Uh carries the eggs in uh a, what's called a male's brood pouch uh for safekeeping and nurturing. But it turns out that the pipefish are actually what they think naturally selecting both before and after during this process. So first they're going to seek out larger female pipefish. So this is the attractive part of that headline. They like them big. They gotcha. like they like they like their ladies large. And um and then what they find is that those uh, eggs that are the result of that union, those are the ones that they're actually going to nurture more. They can actually withhold resources and they do withhold resources sometimes with the smaller fish. 
uh, that they mate with. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the abort part, right? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, some people think that it's, and this was actually to me, this was the best part of the article. It says it is possible that large females can manipulate males so that they give birth to their offspring, whereas males may have greater control over smaller females than they do over him. Hmm. So they're thinking that maybe that's why the survival rate of the female, um, pipefish's children are greater, that, that she exerts some sort of influence over him, huh. which Again, like this is one of those things that, you know, in terms of anthropomorphizing, I'm like, oh, really? I mean, just, um, is he scared of her? I just, I mean, this is a lot of drama. Imagine if, uh, if Pipefish had soap operas. Oh, yeah. 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 It'd be crazy. I think there's, there's an idea there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also like the idea of there being cuttlefish, um, soap operas. Cause you have all the weird gender bending with cuttlefish where the, um, the small males will, uh, will change their color and size to where they look like females. Oh, and then well, they'll, uh, they're drag queening it up. Yeah. But then they'll use that. See, there'll be like a, there'll be like a big, um, a big cuttlefish, you know, big daddy, you know, tough guy cuttlefish, kind of like the, the big muscle man on the, uh, on the beach, you know, and he's hanging out with the beautiful lady cuttlefish and, and he's all like, nobody get near my cuttlefish. This is my lady. I'm going to mate with her. Meanwhile, the young, the, the smaller uh, male cuttlefish who can't really go toe to toe with this guy disguises himself as a female, slips in there and he's just like, Oh, what's that? Another lady? Yeah. Get in line. Uh, but he goes and mates with the female. Wow. And then, you know, and then slips away and the, the big muscle, uh, cuttlefish is, uh, uh, you know, has no idea anything took place. That's like a Pedro Almodovar film. And actually I'm thinking about Isabella Rossellini, right? Oh, she yeah. has the show. Uh, have you seen it before? No, I don't think so. I cannot remember the title. Um, but it's either on like HBO or mm-hmm. IFC and she dramatizes these events in nature. Oh, wow. That's and amazing. It's great, actually. She usually has like full body costumes as the creature <laughs> that she's portraying. And a lot of times she actually talks about this, the mating rituals and the sexual lives of um, the animal kingdom. And it's so bizarre because it's Isabella Rossellini dressed up as a praying mantis or, you know, <laughs> it, it's very, uh, I, I encourage you to see it if, if it is on or um, coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I was always really confused about how Isabella Rosalini, beautiful lady, and then Dave Foley, uh, Kids in the Hall member. Yes. Dave Foley would, would, would dress in drag for comedy bits, and he would look alarmingly like Isabella Rosalini. I can say that. Yeah. He's got those big, dewy eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Put a little mascara on. Yeah. Now it's I've, a thin line. I'm telling is. you, between gender, it's a gender performance, right? That's what, yeah. that's what, uh, drag queening it. Well, I hope is. Isabella Rosalini does one on Cuttlefish if she is not already. I know. So, Isabella, if you're listening, that's our request. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, well, there's some uh, some animal fathers for everybody. And uh, I happen to have a little listener mail here about a previous episode we did on the placebo effect. Ah, uh, yes. The red pill or the blue pill? Uh, yeah. I believe, believe that's the one. Uh, and this is uh, from a listener by the name of Jamie. Jamie says, I enjoyed your podcast on the placebo effect. And there's more. Uh, <laughs> while there is a very real psychological and psychological... A very real psychological response to taking a sugar pill. There are also several other factors that can impact the measurement of a drug's efficiency. Two of the most important are the natural course of a disease and regression to the mean. And this is really interesting because there was a recent episode of Radio Lab that dealt with this. Uh, m- most diseases are naturally waxing and waning. 
and many may be resolved naturally without any intervention, placebo or otherwise. As a result, giving a placebo to 100 people with depression will not just result in better mood because of the psychological effects of getting a pill, but also due to the fact that depressed individuals often have periods of good mood for no reason other than natural progression of the disease. They would improve without any intervention at all. Regression to the mean is another effect that can cause over uh, overestimation of the placebo effect. Essentially, regression to the mean means that an individual experiencing extremely bad symptoms one day will likely have better symptoms the next day regardless of intervention. Couple this with the fact that patients with worse symptoms will be more likely to start in, start new medication or enter a study or get a new treatment. And it's easy to see that patients entering a research facility with very bad symptoms will improve, placebo or no placebo. Finally, patients may also experience the Hawthorne effect, whereby merely being in a trial uh, causes of like a drug trial right. uh, causes patients to act better or claim greater symptom relief, perhaps in a subconscious effort to please the examiner. While it is commonly used to discuss behavioral studies, the Hawthorne effect has some consequences for medical research. So, uh, and and Jamie is a first year med student, by the way. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. We talked about in the placebo effect how the medical community is really trying to redefine what the placebo effect is, because of course it depends on what your sample size is and um, yeah. what the what they're suffering from, absolutely, yeah. in terms of really being able to judge it. So it's not like a one-size-fit-all thing that, um, that you can apply across the board, right, in terms yeah. of, okay, here's here are our metrics that we're right. going to uh, figure this out. Yeah, and the regression to the mean, too, it's also it's all about, like, I do one study, and I might get kind of a crazy skewed result. Like, yeah. I wonder if uh, people prefer the movie Blade 1 or the movie Blade 2. And uh, the first study said that, wow, 75% of people like Blade 1 better. How is that possible since Blade 2 is clearly the better film? And then the more that you uh, you actually do the study, you see that you get you, your results uh, increasingly resemble the actual situation, which of course where most people agree that Blade 2 is the better film. Actual study. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, if you have any interesting tidbits you want to share with us, so you want to interact with us, um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are Blow the Mind on both of those, or just throw, you know, Blow the Mind uh, into Google, and you'll 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 likely land at one of those. Um, and also drop by the How Stuff Works uh, homepage. That's HowStuffWorks.com. Go to that uh, search bar that we have there, pop in uh, fatherhood, and you will be just in awe of the number of search results you will get, a number of really awesome items uh, to explore, especially as we uh, you know approach Father's Day and all. That's right. Lots of good father fodder. And if you would like to weigh in on any of this, including the Blade film, uh, feel free to give us an email or send us an email, your preference, at uh, blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.